clean over dirty. What I mean by that is take worse valuations in clean terms over preference and other strange terms. It makes all your future rounds much harder to get done. And there's usually a correlation with people who are giving onerous terms to not being good venture backers. So the best VCs tend to give very clean terms. You might not agree with their valuation all the time, but it's worth it. Amazon, Google, and Facebook are three businesses run radically differently. They're all wildly successful. You know, Goldman Sachs, another business very successful, also radically run differently than those other three. So you don't have to run the business like Amazon or like Google or like Meta in order to be successful. You can do it your own flavor. There's really only two rules. Don't run out of money and don't overlever the business. Because we weren't in one of these marquee markets where everyone's like, well, all you need is an idea and a paper and a good team will give you a ton of capital. That was never our story. And so the unit economics always had to work. There always had to be tons of margin. Hello, everyone, and welcome to FinTech Leaders. Coming to you from New York City, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa, and I'm a co-founder of Gilgamesh Ventures, a venture capital fund that backs early-stage fintech entrepreneurs in the U.S., Canada, and Latin America. If you enjoyed this conversation, I invite you to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your show so more people can learn about fintech leaders. My guest today is Jason Gus, CEO and co-founder of Octane Lending, the leading software and credit provider for purchases of power sports vehicles, RVs, and outdoor power equipment. Founded in New York City in 2014, Octane now funds over a billion dollars in annual loans and is backed by Valar Ventures, Contour, IA Ventures, Berenson, Third Prime, Fintech Collective, Upper 90, and many more. Jason is also one of the most respected founders in fintech and the world of credit. In this episode, we discuss de-risking your business with early hires and the difference between missionary and mercenary talent, why they were forced to build a profitable business from day one at Octane, reflections on building a credit-driven business and dealing with capital markets, fundraising lessons and advice on how to deal with venture capitalists, and a lot more. So Jason, thanks for joining FinTech Leaders. I know we've been, or at least I've been trying to get this episode recorded for a few years (laughs) since I was hosting the past podcast, but I'm glad we're finally doing it. How's everything going? Everything's going great. Thank you so much for having me and really looking forward to it. Jason, we have quite a few founders or aspiring founders as part of the audience. I'd love to first get into your motivations of why you even decide to start a company. You launched your career, correct me if I'm wrong, but in you know one of the big banks, I think you were part of one of the analyst groups in Wall Street, but that didn't last long. What was it that kind of led you down the path of entrepreneurship? So my path's a little bit unusual. So when I was in college, a roommate and someone from the business school when I was an undergrad and I had a trading strategy that we were very serious about. And so we all had to take jobs with trading restrictions after college. And so 
I found myself at Capital One working in corporate strategy. The only thing I couldn't trade was Capital One, which didn't matter for the strategy that we were operating. And although I, I really enjoyed my time at Capital One and I learned a tremendous amount, I kind of always had this entrepreneurial bent. I mean, the first entrepreneurial bent was running this fund, which ended up not working out, but did teach me a considerable amount. And I found myself on a consulting project based in Seattle, where a good friend of mine from college was working for Redfin. And we had dinner and we talked about, we were both really interested in starting a company, but we wanted to focus on real business problems and overlooked markets that weren't necessarily receiving all the venture dollars. And it turned out my other kind of future co-founder had stumbled upon the power sports market in a rotation that he was doing. And he had discovered effectively that the power sports market was large, but underserved. And although financing operated pretty similarly to the auto finance market in that consumers secure the financing through a finance manager in a dealership, there were no aggregators that those finance managers could utilize to secure financing. So in, instead of using call like a one-stop shop, like a Credit Karma or equivalent at point of sale or dealer track, which is the primary platform in the auto space, they'd have to go to various websites, apply one at a time, which was very inefficient and tedious. And so we saw an opportunity to build an aggregator for finance managers at those dealerships. And so left Capital One a few weeks later. I took the GMAT just in case this didn't work out. I was very young. And so much to my, my parents' horror, I left this great stable job to try to do something entrepreneurial. But I had the GMAT in my back pocket just in case things didn't go well. I could go to business school. I'd probably end up doing something very similar to what I was already doing. That's one great thing about the US is that everyone always gives you know, even failed entrepreneurs a chance. And so that's something that's always really great for you know any, any founder to think about is there's always other things that they could be doing afterwards. And you know, effectively, we weren't 100% certain that this was the right business for us to pursue. You know, keep in mind, we're all very young and none of us were experts in the power sports market. And so in addition to trying to further validate the power sports idea, we interviewed a bunch of people off our college alumni network and asked three questions. What do you hate most about your job? What are the biggest inefficiencies in your market? And what would you pay me to build for you? We came up a list of five ideas, including the power sports idea for the lender aggregator. We applied to a bunch of incubators. And then luckily with what I know now, because I know so much more about running a business and what it takes, the power sports idea got picked up. None of the other ones would have really worked with given what I know now. But I guess that's a sign that the market is somewhat efficient. And so we moved to Texas with Dream Adventures. And that's where we initially you know, started building our business, which is now called Octane Lending. You mentioned that you were trying to look for an idea in a market that was receiving less venture dollars. Sometimes there's a reason why some pockets of the economy are receiving less investment. Did you struggle raising your initial rounds? So it's a double-edged sword. On the one hand, to your point, you know, you, you basically are able to face much less competition, but the cost of that, the trade is you get much less access to capital. What it meant effectively is that we always had to be one step ahead relative to what other people were raising at. So our KPIs need to be so overwhelmingly compelling in order to get that capital. And so from my perspective, the reason why I like those types of business ideas 
is that effectively limited kind of public visibility into a problem means that you're far less likely to face competition. And whenever you face venture subsidized competition, you're basically compounding the amounts of luck you need to have to be successful. And I know there are people who will you know, claim that that is a ridiculous statement, but I actually believe it's true. Whenever you're facing you know, people who are top tier caliber and a lot of venture subsidies, you just have tons of different players. It's not necessarily clear why one person's going to win it over the other. It oftentimes takes a little bit of luck, a little bit of timing. But by being in markets where you face almost no venture capital competition, you kind of take all of that away from the from the, the equation. I'd much rather compete against an incumbent, although incumbents are also very tough for their own set of reasons. But I'd rather have my competition set be made up of banks as opposed to venture subsidized fintechs. So Jason, if I heard your first answer correctly, it sounds like you started just by being a alone distributor. You were just maybe a marketplace showing the business or, or the customer the best possible option or a few options, a range of options. But today and for a while, you've been providing the loan yourselves. When did that switch happen? It's actually kind of the natural result of, I would say, iteration of the business model. So we raised a million and a half in December of 2014 to fund the lender aggregator. Within six weeks, our business case had been cracked. We realized that all of the good lenders had no interest on being on an aggregator. So you had this adverse selection whereby only the lenders who absolutely needed every possible lead because they couldn't get leads on their self. And usually there was a reason for that. Maybe the credit product was weak. Maybe they were expensive. Maybe they were slow. And so we realized that we couldn't get anyone who was good on the platform. And then also, even if we were able to get lenders who were good, we wouldn't get paid enough to make this a venture business. It could have been a lifestyle business. But although that business didn't work, there was kind of always a kernel of truth. The kernel of truth was that the financing process was very inefficient. It was just that our solution was incorrect. And so we pivoted to originating the loans ourselves. So utilizing the technology that we had built, which was a loan origination system or underwriting platform, which at the time we were trying to use to convince people to get on our marketplace. And then also the dealer portal, which was kind of optimized for a finance manager to close the loan with the consumer very efficiently. Instead of using that for other lenders, we used it for ourselves. And so we launched Roadrunner Financial in June of 2016. And that's really when the business kind of hit product market fit. And so ever since then, the vast majority of our business has been delivered through our own originator. You mentioned being young founders, a young team. You did convince some pretty experienced people to join the team. A lot of founders go through this, right? You, you launch a business at 22, 25, 30, but you got to hire someone who's twice your age sometimes. Tell us about that experience. Yeah, it's, it's a great question. The way that I look at it is, for me, it was life or death. In a business that's founded on credit, oftentimes you need to have deep expertise within your business to set the odds for success because the odds are set against you. So you want to do whatever you can to set the odds in your favor especially because as soon as your credit stops performing well, it's very difficult to have a successful lender just straight up. And so one of the things I realized very early on, I did not have a background in credit. Now, I like credit naturally. I find it very fascinating. But there are all these things that I could just accelerate the time frame 
and also just improve myself more than I could through any other means. Then there's no way without hiring someone who, who was an expert. And so I went through my network to try to get connected to someone who was an expert in consumer lending. And you know, connection introduced to another connection, introduced to another connection. Essentially, we got very lucky. I was able to connect with Ray Duggins, who was the former chief risk officer of GE Capital Consumer. Before that, he had been a, an executive at various consumer lending shops you know, throughout the US and you know, covering the world. And it just was perfect that at this point in time, he was already open to advising other entrepreneurs. And so we worked with him as an advisor for several months as we built our initial credit models. And then we actually loved working together so much that he was, you know, after we ran a search, we realized that why are we running a search? I should just see if he would in any world consider working with us. And thankfully, he joined us that time in May of 2016. But the way I kind of look at it is there's oftentimes two different types of people, and they're not good or bad. They're just different motivations. You have mercenary and you have missionary. And so, you know, Ray was very much a missionary. He's willing to do things for non-economic returns, but as a way for him to pay it forward for this amazing career that he had had and just, you know, continue to work on things that he really enjoys doing. I think that if you're trying to hire people who are very experienced, especially when you're earlier on, you're not going to have the capital to be able to hire a mercenary. You have to find people who are more missionary, people who are willing to work with you for non-purely cash returns. Now, they might find the, you know, the upside of a startup exciting, but that can't be the primary reason because the EV is always worse than being a CRO at an XYZ major bank, which they could do. Or if you're talking about a CFO with the equivalent experience, you know, it's an MD at Wall Street or a CTO who's you know, making multiple millions of dollars at Google, there needs to be a reason outside of the economics for them to want to join you. And so that's kind of the advice again, try to find that missionary person who's excited about the problems you're solving, enjoys working with you, and is just looking for, you know, looking for something besides a pure cash return. And then as your later stage, you have more flexibility because you now have enough capital to you know, pay really aggressively or whatever else you want to do. And you can make choices on how you want to spend your capital. But I've always over-indexed on hiring an executive team that's missionary over mercenary. Can you get mercenaries, to stay on this point a little bit, can you get mercenary hires early on? It's really challenging in my opinion. It's not impossible, but it's really challenging because it usually, I think, will lead to constant frustration over compensation in title and position within the company. Whereas when you're that early, you shouldn't have to worry about politics at all. I wish in an ideal world, you'd never have to worry about politics, but invariably, most startups end up having politics as you start scaling. It's just how things are, unfortunately. Now, the best companies are able to avoid it, but you should try to avoid that as long as possible. And mercenaries can fit, you know, very special roles for companies or certain types of managers are very good at managing mercenary type personalities. But I think in terms of the kind of your initial executive team, over-indexing non-missionary is is quite critical because the drag on the team for the, the side effects of some of the mercenary behaviors in the early days is really just not, not conducive to success. And it will burn you out, in my opinion. So Jason, you're running a credit fintech. Let's talk about the, the elephant in the room for a lot of fintechs that are kind of making their money through credit, and that's raising interest rates. It's changed the entire landscape. You started in a low interest environment. How did you 
experienced this. When you started, did you envision, you know, a kind of environment where we sit today? You know, I, I know through many people that work with you that you guys are actually doing quite well, right? So I, I'd love to hear what's been the process that has allowed you to not just survive, but to thrive in a high interest rate environment. So one of it is actually a side effect of what we talked about earlier, which is we're in a esoteric space. And so we've always had to sing for our dinner. We never got fundraising easily. And so our KPIs always need to be way better and super compelling in order for us to get every drop of capital into our business. Because we weren't in one of these marquee markets where everyone's like, well, all you need is an idea and a paper and a good team and we'll give you a ton of capital. That was never our story. And so the unit economics always had to work, always had to be tons of margin. And so because of that, you know, one of the mistakes I believe some fintechs made, now I think very few of them make this mistake, is in the early days, you have phenomenal technology, sometimes phenomenal credit, and then almost capital markets was an afterthought. But we got the joke early. We understood that the difference between good capital markets execution and bad capital markets execution could sometimes, depending on your asset class, be more impactful than having the best underwriting versus the worst underwriting. Now, of course, you need to have the two play together. Without terrific credit, you can't have good capital markets. And so we kind of always invested equally into those three elements, technology, credit, and capital markets from an early, early, early on. And that really helped us support our unit economics. And so relative to many of our fintech peers, we securitized earlier. We got rated AAA from S&P and Kroll. Very few fintechs ever achieve those milestones. But what they give you is they give you access to much more stable capital markets. So you're able to access markets in far more environments and then also for cheaper capital. And then, as I mentioned earlier, because we were always focused on this profitability, owning our own destiny, because we didn't know whether or not we'll get more capital because we're not in an attractive space, we focused on profitability. So in the year where everything was good, which was low losses, low cost of funds, a lot of fintechs were still losing money. Unit economics didn't work, or they were unprofitable. In 2021, we were meaningfully gapped at income profitable. And so when everything changed in 2022, although it was very painful for us, we had much higher margin of safety built into our business. And then because of the mindset of who we are as a team, that led to us being profitable back in 2021. It was very easy for us to turn the oil tanker around and change strategies when the market turned poorly, as opposed to some of the other folks who weren't profitable in 21 were trying to resist the need to change for longer. So we were able to act very quickly because of the conservative mindset that we have. Um, and then that returned us to profitability. So we returned to profitability in March after being unprofitable last year. Um, and then we're year to date gap and income profitable and expect to be profitable from here on end. So even despite the market being much more challenging, we remain profitable. Our unit economics have always been profitable. We never had a period of unprofitable unit economics. And that's something I think is critical to a lending business specifically. It's much different than a pure SaaS company. I'm curious, what are some of those changes in strategy you had to implement last year to to, re, to reach back to profitability again? In normal markets where a couple of markets aren't stressed and, and losses are stable, you make so much more money for every single extra loan you're able to originate that a lot of your ROI calculations, when you kind of put it into the box, what comes out is strategies that help drive more originations. 
However, when you're capital constrained, so we had to make the strategic decision to keep originations flat last year. We were able to much more comfortably fund $1.2 billion versus we could have originated $2 billion if we wanted to. Doing $2 billion would have strained our balance sheet too much and made us too uncomfortable. And so effectively, that calculus totally changed. It went from, okay, you make so much more money for every loan, so most of your stuff should be trying to generate more loans, to now, hey, you actually can't originate more. You're constrained on originations. So now it's no longer that important for you to do things that help generate more originations. Instead, it's all about optimizing the amount of income per origination. And so we shifted a lot of resources from you know things that were generating leads, generating more merchant activations, deeper penetration, shifted that to automation, workflow improvements, et cetera, that lowered servicing origination expense, improved loss performance, Etc. So anything that was basically going to help drive the unit economics of the business. And now that we're kind of back in an environment because of the work that we've did, now that we're returning to profitability and you know are, are able to grow again, now we could be more balanced. We're still investing the foundations of the business, which are you know, things that lower our variable expenses. While at the same time, we now have the luxury of also being able to invest in things that grow originations again. We've talked about the fin. Let's talk about the tech side, that's something we haven't touched too much on. Your distribution strategy is key also to getting excellent unit economics and, and, and just contribution margin. Tell us how that kind of contributes to the business possibly, and also a little bit more about the technology that you've built. The way that we look at it, there's basically four strategies you can deploy to win. Most businesses do a combination of these four. So the first is pricing. So banks have a huge advantage over fintechs on pricing. And so effectively, whenever I see a fintech that's their main strategy is undercutting banks on pricing, I'm always like, I wonder how long that will last before they run out of money. Because banks have inherently lower cost of funds. But here's the good news. That inherently lower cost of funds comes at a cost. The cost is the other three strategies that you can deploy. One is credit. So you can invest a tremendous amount of data science and technology resources in order to have a more competitive credit product. That enables you to either underwrite risk better so you could price people more competitively or cover consumers who were previously underserved. It's one of the biggest, in my opinion, most exciting promises of fintech is expansion of access. The second value is as a bank, it's much harder for them to build technology, hence why lots of banks tend to acquire fintech platforms as opposed to trying to build themselves. Now, there are some banks that have been more successful than others, but in general, technology firms tend to be far more nimble than tech. So the second value is what can technology do for you? Well, it drives a much better experience. So you're able to automate things that aren't automated. You're able to make things more intuitive, integrate place it into workflows that are where things make sense versus what how things have been done previously. Basically, all things that make the process faster and easier. Those two strategies describe about 90% of fintech strategies in what I'd call fintech 1.0 slash maybe 2.0, which is basically something was slow, so we made it faster and easier. And the credit products only served a segment of the population, whereas we use modern data science techniques to cover more consumers competitively. Those are the two strategies that I think describe most fintech. And that was our business for the first few years as well. But we've seen many other fintechs see that those aren't really durable modes in themselves. Over time, other people improve their underwriting. Over time, people can copy other people's experiences to try to drive a faster and easier experience as well. So we wanted to kind of a third value, which is what I call the last strategy, or in my opinion, one of the most powerful strategies powered by technology that banks aren't really positioned to do, 
And that's what I call value outside and low. So banks tend to be pretty hampered in how they're able to monetize products. They really are, for regulatory reasons, it's really difficult for them to monetize things that aren't financial services products if they're a bank. But as a non-bank, which fintechs are primarily non-banks, with a few exceptions, you have far more flexibility. And so if I wanted to monetize through SaaS, I could monetize through SaaS. If I wanted to offer products that weren't loans, I could offer products that weren't loans without too much pain. And so I call this value-added services. It's anything that attaches to the financing process or is connected to it in some way that makes you more likely to want to use our loan. So let me give you an example. In our business, we call our primary value-added service end-to-end purchasing. It's this insight that there are all these things that happen before the financing, all these things that happen after the financing, that if we're able to allow consumers, manufacturers, and dealers to complete as many of those steps as possible within our ecosystem, we'd be able to not only win the loan, but also deliver unparalleled value. And so in our case, we own a bunch of media companies that help drive kind of top of funnel leads, get people excited about our products. We have a bunch of research tools of which our most popular is Octane Prequel, which is a white label integration for over 700 dealership websites and many manufacturer websites that helps drive a lot of the online audience into qualified leads. And then the back end, we integrate into the sales manager and finance manager workflows to help them close that consumer very, very quickly. Of course, we have our Octane point of sale platform, which is the fastest and easiest platform. And then because we have servicing in-house, although we don't do it today, we're setting ourselves up in the future to help our growing and growing consumer network access our growing and growing merchant and manufacturer network and help them get into future purchase. And so by being able to drive all of these value props outside of just the point of sale transaction, we're able to help drive unparalleled value. In our case, for the merchants, we're driving a tremendous amount of leads to them, attaching our financing to the consumer ahead of there being an opportunity to apply to a competitor. For the consumers, they're getting better deals, faster and smoother experiences. And then for the manufacturers, we're helping their merchants who are their customer sell more units, which is very powerful. So that's just one example of a value-added service. There are many other things that you could be doing. Another exercise that I think is healthy we think through what are all the different software providers that our merchants are paying for? Well, if you're paying a lot to a service provider, well, what if that attached to the financing process and I could build that in and offer that to you either subsidized or for free, that would probably add a lot of value because it would make the lending experience better and it helps the merchant save some money. And so those are also things that we take a look at in terms of ways that we can compete that are traditional to how lenders historically have competed. Yeah, I mean, in, in summary, you you have built a vertical SaaS platform for power sports dealers, but you started as a financing company. That's the opposite approach that a lot of vertical SaaS companies have taken. They first build the software and then they add payments and credit. I think is interesting. Jason, I know that the company has grown significantly in terms of headcount, several hundred, as I understand it. As you grow, what has been kind of your mental model, the tools that you've used to make decisions, to make strategic decisions? Because you got to set the tone for the company, right? How do you do this? In our company, we utilize the OKR framework, so objective and key results. You know, a book that I, I really enjoyed, which describes the OKR process through a series of stories is Measure What Matters by John Doerr. Highly recommend that book to anyone. So we adopted that approach 
want to say 2018 as a company. So think of it as, as you know, right before our Series B or so. And we're maybe at that point in time, 100 employees directionally. But it's really helped us in terms of making sure that everyone's work is aligned to the major objectives of the business. They cascade down. So we have company OKRs. The teams have their own OKRs. Eventually, each individual can have their own OKRs as well to help build up to that. And so we find that that's a process that's not only helps kind of drive focus of the business, but also creates an opportunity for us to be collaborative across the company with coming up with how are we going to achieve the goals with at, at all levels as opposed to just being a top-down approach. So that's one part of it, using the OKR framework as a way to encapsulate our thoughts. In terms of understanding what are we going to do, we tend to look at ROI calculations basically for everything. So we input return, probability of it actually occurring, and then effort level into basically all of our micro decisions to help us understand doing one thing over another. And then in terms of building alignment, you know, although we're not always doing this successfully, but we, we try to do this when we can, we try to create shared KPIs cross-functionally so that people can support what is best for the business as opposed to what is best for their own department. And then all of our OKRs are completed cross-functionally. So we'll, we set up these squads that are made up of people from different departments that help contribute to the goal as a way to kind of further draw, you know, basically collaboration across the company. So I'm curious how you adapted some of these processes along the way. Is it maybe learning by kind of seeing other examples, other entrepreneurs? Because I, I know you, you're involved in, in multiple boards of other uh, successful companies. Maybe let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So I, I've really, I've been fortunate. I've been able to be on a couple boards and it's actually taught me a tremendous amount. So as an entrepreneur, I up until that point had an experience of one on board. So I only saw our board meetings. I only saw how our company operated very intimately. I only saw how our company you know, displayed KPIs very intimately, et cetera. And so by being on boards and I've also started making you know, small investments into various fintechs, it's given me a lot of access to a much deeper way of thinking about the different strategies to how you can operate a business. And so the way I kind of look at it, and there's no one right strategy to run a company. If there was one right strategy to run a company or to display KPIs or to run a board meeting, then everyone would just follow that one approach. There would be a book about it and say, this version wins, but that's not how it is. It's usually kind of a combination of what the business is trying to achieve, the competitive dynamics, and the personalities and the humans involved that dictate what strategy is likely to be the most successful. Easy way to think about it, Amazon, Google, and Facebook are three businesses run radically differently. They're all wildly successful. You know, Goldman Sachs, another business very successful, also radically run differently than those other three. So you don't have to run the business like Amazon or like Google or like Meta in order to be successful. You can do it your own flavor. And so for me, I've definitely been able to pick up some things. So in terms of how I could get the most out of board meeting, it's been really helpful to see how other people run it. So in the early days, it used to be a lot of me or one of my executive team members talking and just kind of reporting back business results and those sort of things through being able to see other people and also asking you know, our board for advice and scenes for advice, shifted much more to that is there, the content is available, but actually what is discussed is much more kind of what problems are going on in the business and those sort of things. 
and leave kind of the standard financial reporting, KPI reporting to a read beforehand. If you have any questions, we can discuss it type of thing. So that's just one simple example. There are many others that have also been uh, you know, really great to see. And then the last thing I'll say, you know, I have invested in almost 30 fintechs now, uh, very small, very, very small checks. And it, it helps me just see kind of the wide breadth of personalities and strategies to solve problems that occur across most companies. So how do you, you know, navigate a dispute between two executives that you really like each one individually, but for whatever reason, they can't see straight to each other. I now have a much larger network and observed experience of ways in which I can navigate that problem. For example, that beforehand as a very young founder, I don't have much management experience. I might have missed out the 50 times that that occurred through a long career through management that I never had. And how about working with venture capital investors? You know, uh, I'm curious, what have you learned about managing that dynamic? Great question. So I, I'm very fortunate that we really have a great relationship with all of our, our venture investors. But the feedback that I give to founders, it's not so unique, but it is critical clean over dirty. What I mean by that is take worse valuations in clean terms over preference and other strange terms. It makes all your future rounds much harder to get done. And there's usually a correlation with people who are giving onerous terms to not being good venture backers. So the best VCs tend to give very clean terms. You might not agree with their valuation all the time, but it's worth it. Whereas you know some of the harder people to work with. Not always the case. There are great people who do structured deals that it is what it is. But you once again, you want to set the odds for success and so many things can go against you that you should do the thing that makes you most likely to be successful in the future. And one other thing I'll say just on that specific point is I think a lot of founders get messed up over dilution. They may overthink dilution too much. And they should really think that if they're really trying to build a venture business, if they're trying to build a business that's not venture scale, then there are, of course, other strategies that make more sense. So take that aside for this use case. But if you're trying to actually build a venture scale business, it's binary. You're either going to be extraordinarily successful or it won't work. There are very few circumstances where like, oh man, if I just owned another 25 basis points, I would be in the Bahamas right now. That is almost never the case. And so I think that where founders can lead to a zero far more likely is they get too sensitive about things like dilution, which then also leads them into the arms of perhaps the not best investors. But what I tend to find with our own investors, they've all played a slightly different role. So the early days, you know, Contour Venture Partners, Lenore Seed, they were very, I would say, you know, very critical in installing discipline and conservatism into how I thought about building a business, especially one that had a credit ex- credit part, which is very unusual for venture, which is usually kind of throw caution to the wind and move as fast as possible, at least back at that point in time, whereas today things have moved a little bit. IE Ventures, which led our Series A alongside Berenson. So Berenson was very critical in helping me learn about capital markets and help drive that part of the business. IE Ventures really pushed us on trying to think through, hey, all these other fintechs that have done speed and ease and a better credit product all got raised to the bottom over time. What is our answer? And they got us really thinking about pushing value outside of those two historically common fintech values and to thinking about value outside of the, the loan itself through all these end-to-end purchasing tools, et cetera. And then Valar, which is our, our largest investor, has led in our most recent rounds. You know, They have been really critical in terms of pushing us forward and really trying to understand and be more ambitious. You know, It's kind of funny. If I read my initial pitch deck, 
I think I said that the entire opportunity, this was a course for the aggregator business was I think $50 million of revenue or something. Probably why Y Combinator didn't give me an interview. You know, for perspective, we could do $50 million in revenue in two months now. <laughs> so it's just like, it's kind of the same thing with Uber, right? They, they thought the initial opportunity was a billion dollars of revenue. They now do however many billions of revenue they do. And it's part of that expertise of always pushing yourself to understand what other value chains can you add to the existing platform that you have and really push it forward. That's something that they've really been able to instill with us. And then, you know, Third Prime, which has also been an investor with us since the early days, they've also been critical in terms of, you know, helping us think through all sorts of management and people things and getting us all sorts of exciting introductions. So the way I could think about it, venture investors tend to play a few different roles throughout your journey. They change and the same investor might be value added one year. And then once you're more mature, might be slightly less value add. It's not good or bad. It's just kind of how the business evolves. But in general, they're playing advice in terms of like standard problems that occur to all VC companies, which is stuff like managing, hiring the right talent and managing, you know, kind of the more cultural sides of a company. Number two, they're also generally all pretty good at pushing you to think about what could the business become? What, what's the best flavor of the business? They're not going to give you the answers, but they're going to ask you the questions that make you and your team think about what the answers should be. And then three, and this is just foundational. They all need to be able to make the introductions that you need primarily on the fundraising side. So I think there's a misconception for people who haven't uh, done a venture business before that VCs will magically build your businesses for you. That's just not true. There's a great book called Power Law, which goes through the history of venture capital. And so that's kind of what it was like a really long time ago. But you know, in today's world, all the business problems you're solving are so bespoke that the chances that someone is better positioned to solve the problem outside your company, except for your competitors, maybe, is very, very low. You're going to have to solve the problem for yourself. But what they can do is they can make a lot of introductions to you know other venture investors that help you get the capital you need to build your business. And then periodically, they might be able to make a handshake or two to a strategic customer. But that's not the norm. I, I can't think of a single business that has been able to survive based off of strategic introductions from their VC and just can't imagine that exists in today's world. Yeah, I'm glad I asked, and I hope a lot of early stage founders listen to that that answer, Jason. Before I let you go, what's next, right, for Octane? What what has you excited for the next couple of years? Yeah, so there's a lot of exciting stuff in fintech. So the way I can think about fintech 1.0 was all about making things that are slow faster. Fintech 2.0 was making things that are slow faster, and then also giving a vastly superior credit product on the back end, more sophisticated capital markets. Today's fintech, which maybe we could call it 3.0, is the realization, in my opinion, that what the VCs have guided people towards is not necessarily the right answer, which is SaaS should just do SaaS, there should be no lending. Lending companies should just do lending, there should be no SaaS. I think it's actually the worst possible answer to the question. And I think what's next is the realization that you have to do both, that the best SaaS companies will have embedded finance solutions. And the best lending companies will also offer all the SaaS features. And whether or not you choose to monetize via SaaS or through lending will just be an artifact of the underlying fundamentals of the markets that you're serving. And so as I look at Octane's future, it's continuing to build out all the SaaS features because we started out as a lender. So now we have to tie in all the SaaS features in order to help drive to kind of the pinnacle, the three values of passes and easiness experience, full credit spectrum, so expanding access prudently. And then, of course, you know, value outside loan, end-to-end purchasing and other tools that help drive more of the transaction experience before and after the financing into our ecosystem. And so I'm super excited about 
driving those three values, continuing to build against them, and then driving into more and more markets. Well, Jason, this has been amazing. I'm glad we did this finally. Uh, excited to see you soon in person, not over video, but uh, really admire what you've built. And then I'm going to be watching very closely the future of Octane. Well, thank you so much for including me and uh, really overdue. So thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this great episode with Jason Gus, CEO of Octane. If you want more interviews, make sure to subscribe, follow, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. It helps and truly means a lot. And if you have any suggestions or thoughts about the show, just drop me a line on Twitter or LinkedIn. Signing off till next week, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.